This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. The Holy Gospel according to Luke 19, Luke 19, 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. For the Word of God is Scripture, for the Word of God among us, for the Word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Well, it's a familiar story to many of us who were raised in a church setting. We'd often hear this story in Sunday school. We'd learn uh, the song that goes along with it. Right? Many of you could still sing it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. I couldn't remember that next part. <laughs> but then you remember that, you know, and the Lord said, Zacchaeus, and you shake the finger, you come down. We're going to your house today. Right? Because of that familiarity for many of us with this story, it's hard to take it seriously because it, this is a kid's story. Right? We heard it in Sunday school, and we learned this song, and so we think it's not that serious. But it is serious. It is a serious story, because it's the story of seeing someone who had been an outcast, someone who had been a hated other, who was welcomed in. Perhaps a sports analogy will help. Speaking of the hated other. <laughs> Too soon? <laughs> Too soon. I mean, I heard there was a big rivalry game last night. And if you're not into sports or into this particular rivalry, I apologize. I normally try to not, I normally try not to bring sports into sermons, but once in a while you can't help it. Well, if you live in this state... Feel free to substitute your own rivalry that's more meaningful to you. But if you live in the state, you're at least aware of the Michigan-Michigan State rivalry. It's one that gets the blood going. A local news story uh, this week said, For some, the Michigan-Michigan State football game rivals other special days, like Thanksgiving, <laughs> Christmas, and New Year's Eve. Who here feels that way? I'd raise my hand, except I injured my shoulder this week, so I can't. 
can't lift my arm above my head right now. It gets you fired up and you want to win badly. Because when you lose, you have to hear about it for a year. Yeah. And that's painful. And this you're not just hearing about it from fans from a different state or far away, right? These are your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, or in my case, my brothers. <laughs> I went to Michigan, he went to Michigan State. And yes, he's my little brother. <laughs> well, last year, oh no, this, last year when Michigan, this game was happening, Michigan was up by more than two scores. I made the mistake of texting my brother. Oh no. <laughs> and I said, no matter who wins the game, it's clear who the better team on the field is. This <laughs> is my fault, Michigan fans. I apologize. Mistakes were made. Well, at the end of the game, after Michigan State had a furious comeback and won, my brother said, I think the scoreboard tells us who the better team on the field is. And he was right. And I had nothing to say after that. And so it can be easy in the heat of a rivalry to think of fans and the opposing team as the other, as not us. And sadly, I woke up this morning to read about an altercation which happened after the game in which multiple players from one team ganged up on a single player from the other school and beat him up pretty badly. And as a free press writer puts it, when the teams are both good and flying around and talking trash, it's fabulous fall theater. But sports rivalries don't justify violence ever. And I would say this no matter which team was guilty here, that's absolutely true. And before I'd read about this incident, I was going to say that this is a lighthearted take on the idea of the other, because it's just about sports and college allegiance, right? sort of a tribalism light, if you will. But obviously, even such fun rivalries can go too far. And so we know, at some level, what it can feel like to feel disdain for the other. And if sports isn't your thing, you could substitute in politics or something like that. And not only do we know what it can be like to feel disdain towards someone, we know what it can be like to feel simply indifferent or not care about someone because that someone isn't one of us. The psychologist Richard Beck gives a great example. He says, I asked my students to imagine that one of your friends just got a new job as a, a server at a restaurant. And you and a group of friends are going to surprise your friend who got the job and you're going to show up and ask to be seated in their section and show support and leave a big tip. And so you go to the restaurant, you get seated, your friend comes up and they are sweating and clearly hairy and not having a good night. How would you respond in that situation? If this was you. And this was your friend. What would you say to your friend? I, I don't know. Is there anything I can do to help you? Is there anything I can do? Yeah. Give me a table. I'll take it. Yeah. What can I do? Right. Or you'd say, don't even worry about us. Right. Serve the other tables first. Don't, don't worry about us. You know, we're here. You got this. You know, you'd, you'd be supportive. And, and Beck says that this response that we would have in such a situation is no great moral response. 
uh, no great moral act because this response is as natural as breathing to us. It's reflexive and automatic to extend grace to a friend in a difficult situation. And why is that? Because they are inside what he calls our moral circle. But now imagine that you go to dinner with some friends, or maybe family, maybe it's a special occasion, and you have a server who you don't know. And this server is stressed out, performing poorly, and you don't get good service. Leah says, I know that server. <laughs> How do you respond now when it's someone you don't know at all? Be honest. <laughs> Treat them the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. That's good. That's good. I like that. But too often, we're not as quick to do that. Right. Too often, we're to grumble a little and say, hey, I don't go out that often, and when I do, I expect to be served well. Yeah. And so you might give a smaller tip. Maybe no tip. You might even complain to the manager. Be honest. <laughs> and Beck says, because this is a stranger and not someone in your moral circle, you're much more likely to get frustrated and angry. Mm -hmm. And many of us have been there, if we admit it. Mm -hmm. We'd like to say we would treat them just the same. I agree with you, but mm, we're less likely to if it's someone we don't know at all. And he says, Beck says, because in a deep psychological sense, this server wasn't really human or really another person. They're just part of the backdrop of our lives, right? She just had a job to do to help us enjoy what we were there to enjoy, and she was outside of our moral circle. And anthropologists and sociologists note that this is how humans tend to treat one another when we consider someone as not, quote, one of us. Well, in the situation in our text, Zacchaeus is not an unknown stranger to this crowd. He actually was known, which wasn't working in his favor, right? Because he was a tax collector. And not just any tax collector, a chief tax collector, and it says he was rich. And that meant he was known and he was not liked. Probably, in fact, even hated. Because he represented Rome. He rep represented the empire's oppression over them. And his wealth was gained in large part at their suffering, and many of them are really struggling economically, and he represents the cause. He is the face of all that challenges them. And so in a way, their feelings toward him are morally justified. What he's done in many levels wasn't right. And they're not wrong to feel a sense of anger toward this guy, and yet Jesus sees him as human, as someone created in God's image, someone who is not simply other. And so out of that whole crowd in Jericho, as Jesus is passing through, Jesus singles out this guy, the least popular guy in town, a guy who might have preferred to stay in the background. He did go up in the tree, but that wasn't to draw attention to himself. But Jesus now has drawn attention to him. And it's no wonder the crowd gets angry. powerful example of Jesus' practice of extravagant welcome, of welcoming someone even when no one else will. 
Richard Rohr says, my lifetime of studying Jesus would lead me to summarize all of his teaching inside of two prime ideas, forgiveness and inclusion. He says, don't believe me, just go through the gospel story by story. And he cites this as one such example, the story of Zacchaeus. It is rather self-evident. Forgiveness and inclusion are Jesus' great themes. They are the practical name of love. And without forgiveness and inclusivity, love is largely a sentimental valentine. But when we forgive and include, it's sort of putting our money where our mouth is. And then he says this, they are also the two practices that most undercut human violence. Because if Jesus had singled out Zacchaeus and accused him of all his wrongdoings, how would the crowd have reacted? It wouldn't have been good, right? They would have gotten angry and hostile and would have turned into a dangerous mob. But what happens when Jesus includes him? Well, all that anger towards Zacchaeus shifts onto Jesus, doesn't it? Now they're mad at, they were mad at Zacchaeus, now they're mad at Jesus, because he's welcoming Zacchaeus. Right? He's taken on all that hostility, frustration, and anger. Jesus now becomes the problem because he is welcoming in the unwelcomable. I remember back a few years ago when the former president was touting the building of a big, beautiful wall on our southern border. And at that time, our church held a protest downtown in Holland, and uh, some of you were there. And we held signs saying, no wall, and love the stranger. What would Jesus do? Mm -hmm. Things like that. Well, the Holland Sentinel ran an article the next day with the headline, Church Rallies Against the Wall. I got some phone calls after that. <laughs> some nasty ones, including one from a gentleman who said he was going to, quote, round up 5,000 illegals and drop them off at our church. Not quite sure how he was going to do that. But you could see the dynamics in play, couldn't you? Because it was seen as people south of the border, immigrants were seen as threat. And then when we said, no, that's not how it is. We welcome and love people like this. It was easier to anger, shift the anger to a target closer to home. Or this church who should have kept their mouths shut and stayed out of politics. The classic scapegoat mechanism. And Jesus in his radical path of forgiveness and inclusion, love and welcome toward those who had been ostracized and otherized, took that target off of others and onto himself. He became the ultimate scapegoat and showed us that the way of God is in fact the way of love and no one is beyond God's reach. But again, in defense of this crowd, Zacchaeus had done some bad things. He had harmed them. They weren't wrong to be upset at him. 
And of course, Jesus' acceptance of him wasn't an endorsement of his actions. Notice that he was prepared to make restitutions and, and right his wrongs. But it's true as well that there may be people we are rightly upset at in our world today. People who pour dark money into politics, corrupt politicians, corporate executives who pillage the earth for profit and make money off the backs of those who are underpaid. People who force their religious beliefs around marriage or abortion into the public square. And we could add to that list. And so while it's easy, I think, for many of us here today in this circle to imagine that we are always on the side of inclusion, the question must be turned to us. Who is it that we might want to scapegoat? Who do we feel has no redeeming quality and whom society would be better off without? At what level of our humanity do we lose when we scapegoat others, no matter how justified we might feel in doing so? And so in our efforts to right wrongs and to seek justice, let us continue to learn from Jesus that no one is beyond the reach of love. No one is beyond the reach of forgiveness and inclusion. No one is beyond the radical welcome of God. Because as soon as we imagine that they are, well, Nietzsche put it just about right. Whoever fights monsters should see to it in the, that in the process, he too does not become a monster. Amen. Maybe so. invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.